Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. It's Wednesday, so we are in your feed. We're still recording remotely due to COVID. One of these days, we'll get back together. But remotely, today we have Mary Simon. Hey, everybody. Elizabeth McNulty. Hi, everyone. Liz Lenevy. Hi there. And Erica Slater. Hey, everyone. Hi, ladies. Today, our topic is case evaluation. And what we wanted to discuss and share with our listeners is because we do plaintiff's personal injury work largely, our analysis starts at day one. It starts with the first phone call we get either from the referring attorney or the first email we get directly from a potential client. We are tasked with immediately and really never ending our analysis of whether this is a case that we can win. At the end of the day, it's about being successful for our clients and either resolving the case through a settlement or winning the case in front of a jury. And because we have the benefit really of picking our clients, much of what we do starts with understanding our clients' background and their stories in addition to specifically what the alleged negligence is and what their damages are. So what we're going to talk about today is the factors that we look at starting at the very beginning for analyzing a case to determine whether it can be successful. And I have those kind of broken down into a a couple of different categories. The first one is what I would call legal categories. So in order to file a lawsuit, which is what we do, we have to have a legal basis to file that lawsuit. And that can include whether we're filing it within the appropriate time frame, the statute of limitation, whether there's any immunity that applies to the defendants that we're looking to sue, whether we're in the right venue or whether we have the right jurisdiction, where do we bring the case? what jurors or what judges are going to be involved in this case. It includes an analysis of the bad acts, of the liability of the defendant, whether there's any potential for punitive damages in the case, and whether, frankly, our clients are people who a jury of 12 regular people are going to relate to. One of the hardest things that we deal with in this profession as trial attorneys is teaching jurors empathy and whether jurors can listen to our client's story and believe that story and feel that story to the extent that they want to take money away from a defendant and give it to our clients. And both of those things are important and both of those things inform our analysis. So, If we look at factors such as what does the liability look like, what damages has our client suffered, where can the case be brought? Erica, I'm going to start with you. 
when you meet with a client, are you already evaluating that person and how are you doing it? I am, mostly because I include some of that discussion usually in the first meeting, especially if part of our analysis, this is going to be a really tough case in the venue that it's in. I'm subtly analyzing that person from the standpoint of how are they going to do at their deposition? How are they going to be in front of a jury? If we are talking to a family whose loved one was rear-ended by a tractor trailer and they were sent to the hospital or had surgery or something like that, I already have a good idea that I'm taking that case based on the liability, damages, the fact that a trucking company is involved. If we're analyzing a medical malpractice case, there's going to be a lot of investigation that's going to happen after that. So that conversation is also going to inform the client what factors we're looking at, which is why I'm already thinking about those things. Liz, what about your clients do you look for in analyzing whether you think a jury is going to respond to them? So the factors that I look for in a client is whether or not, this sounds really simple, but whether or not they're likable, whether or not they're a pleasant person, someone that a jury is going to empathize with and is going to want to give some sort of monetary award, because that's what we're going to be asking for at the end of the day. Something I learned early on working at Simon is that it really, it's not enough for the jury to dislike the defendant. The jury must also like your client. And a lot of that just goes into how much you can prepare that person for those stages of litigation. But there might be factors within the client's background that make it too risky of a case to take. I'll give an example. Sometimes we look at birth injury cases or cases where a child has been injured somehow or has suffered some sort of maybe exposure to a dangerous product, something like that. And then I start to go through the records and I realize, well, they, they were exposed to this and that could have contributed to what's going on. But, but what else is within the records? An example I'm thinking of is where mom, unfortunately, maybe was a, a drug user during pregnancy or was drinking a lot during pregnancy. And when I look at whether or not a jury is going to feel sympathy for this child, which unfortunately, it's not just a judgment of the child in that case, it's a judgment of mom. And that's a really harsh reality, but that's something that I have to consider before I can take a case on. And the way I explain to clients is, look, litigation's really tough. Every aspect of your life is going to be uncovered, exposed, judged. This is not an easy process. And so if I don't think we have a really good shot at winning, I'm not going to drag you through this. I'm not going to take you through that. And I'm going to be very honest and open with you from the beginning about what my thoughts are on this case so that if we do end up in litigation and we are a year or two out and you're feeling very flustered with a defense attorney, this doesn't come as a surprise to you. You knew that this was coming because you have been prepared for it. I, I try really hard to have empathy but not sugarcoat things because I don't think that that's fair to a client. So in an interview with a client, it, it's not just them interviewing me to see whether I'm the right attorney for them. I'm also interviewing them to make sure that they are the right client for our firm. 
Liz, I hear you. I couldn't agree more that a, that a client has to be likable. And that really doesn't even sound fair, does it? And I can totally see where that would make you bristle a little bit if you're listening. But it is the reality. And Liz, like you said, you can't sugarcoat it because the worst thing that happens in our profession is we take on a case, believe in it, spend time and money on it, and get the client invested in it, both emotionally and, and, and physically spending time on it, and then lose. And so it is incumbent upon us at the very beginning to really analyze and be objective about this case, because if we're not, you know, bad things happen. And on that issue of uh, likability, I totally get being angry and even, even potentially vindictive. When someone wrongs you, it's really hard to be forgiving. It's really hard to be understanding of that because you're so in the moment of what happened to me and what I'm dealing with, the repercussions from that. And I will say to my client, you know, I understand how you're feeling right now, understand your anger and your frustration, but we got to be on the same page right now that you can express that to me. You can feel that way, but you cannot do it on social media you cannot do it in a public way and you are not going to be able to do it in your deposition or at trial. And those are just the ground rules for going forward with this. And I have very rarely gotten pushback and the pushback I have gotten is legitimate uh, because it's coming from an emotion uh, and just, again, feeling like you're being wronged. When we've already taken a case, and let's say I'm prepping a client for deposition, something I always explain to them is I used to work for a defense firm. And part of the purpose of today's deposition is not just for the attorney to ask you questions and learn more about your case. They're really sizing you up. They are going to make a judgment of you. And when they get back to their office, just like I used to do, they're going to be writing a letter to their client, the insurance carrier, and they're going to include whether or not you were likable, whether a jury is going to like you, whether they were able to get under your skin. And so I explained to clients, it's really important to come off as my, my two Ps, polite and professional. That is the most important thing that can come out of today's deposition. And I tell clients, if you start to get angry or emotional, let me know. Ask to take a break. We'll step into a room and you can call that defense attorney. You can call that defendant every name in the book. As long <laughs> sure. as you say it to me and not in front of them and definitely not on the record. But really, that evaluation about whether or not a client is going to be able to do that begins in the very first meeting. And we have to begin sizing them up and making that judgment call from day one. Agreed. I've been doing a lot of like initial client meetings over the phone because of COVID. Do you find it more difficult to kind of size a client up? And is there any kind of strategies that you utilize to kind of get a better picture of them just over the phone? Yes, Elizabeth, I say Zoom with them, FaceTime with them. You have to learn as much as you possibly can about that person when you're doing an intake. First, I want the listeners to know that our clients range across the board in age, demographic, socioeconomic status. I, I mean, it's there's no majority, right, in our clients. And one of the things that I think is important to understand is that when you're talking to a client and you're evaluating a case and that client being included in that evaluation is, are, are we going to have trust and are they going to have the emotional and mental wherewithal? And I think to Liz, that's Liz and Amy, you were both talking about the the amount of time that you're going to be spending 
with that client, advocating for that client, working on that client's case, it's countless hours over a span of one to potentially two and a half years, right? I mean, hopefully quicker, but that's the reality of it, especially now. So I think that if you're going to have an initial meeting, obviously pre-COVID, Elizabeth, to your point, we would go meet a client at their house. I'd go meet them at a cousin's house, family member, wherever they need to meet where they're comfortable. That's what we do. We meet clients where they're at. But now I have done FaceTimes with clients. I have done Zoom meetings with clients that have worked um, pretty well as for the clients who have technology capabilities, especially prior to a deposition. I've actually had some clients get on video with me ahead of time to do prep or to talk to them if I haven't had enough FaceTime with them. And lately that's just been happening because of COVID. But I do think that there's a lot we can do with a client who we meet who has an excellent case, but might not come off with the likable term. I think there's so much that we can do, and I think it's it stems from our individual personalities with our clients. I've had clients before that I think have a great case, and in the initial meeting, I know that I'm going to have to tell them to call me when they're frustrated with something because I know it will come out elsewhere to someone else. It'll come out to someone who they're going to talk about the case with that I don't want to have that happen. It's a skill that we have to look at someone, know how they're going to play to a group of strangers. The fact that we have a read on that, I just think that's such a unique skill and take it to the next level in knowing, hmm, I know this is how they're going to come off. And I also know how I can spend the next eight months working with them in these certain categories to get them to trust me and lean on me, not take it out anywhere else. Mary, I couldn't agree more that that's part of the evaluation too. Is this someone I can work with? This is someone I relate to and can build a rapport with to practice with them and coach them before they you know, are presenting to the other side or have to be on, if you will. But Liz, I want to I, I guess disagree a little bit with something you said. So it happens. It happens once in a while that we disagree on things. But when I am meeting with a parent of a child who had an injury, I think what you were saying was, you know, maybe the mom's contribution to any issues during prenatal care. But I always remember when I'm meeting with a family member, caregiver, parent about a minor's case. I always remember that my client is the minor. So, you know, if the parent or caregiver isn't someone that is going to help the case, I always remember that we're representing the child. And that's a really important aspect to what my case evaluation includes. I explained to the parents, you're going to be representing the child, which means that you are a big part of this case. And just be prepared to to get dragged through the mud a little bit. It's right. it's going to happen. Something I have found myself doing more and more and something I want to take with me after we get out of COVID is I just start Googling clients. I will run their name through Google, through CaseNet, through Facebook, Twitter. I want to know what I can learn about this client. An example I'm thinking of is a class action that I've assisted on and when we were trying to find a class rep, which is a little bit of a different scenario than than what we're specifically talking about today, but but it is an example. When we looked up this potential class representative for this class action suit, there were a lot of problematic things on her Facebook. 
in another case we were looking up, this particular potential class rep was a big conspiracy theorist. She's got a lot of wild thoughts that she has put out on the internet. And so maybe she fit all the parameters to be a class rep, but maybe she's not the class rep that we want because there's a lot of baggage that is easily discoverable on the internet. And I know it sounds harsh what we're saying about whether, you know, the actions of our own clients, but it's not us that it affects. Rest assured, the defense attorney is going to poke and poke and poke and try to get as much of that in evidence as possible. Some of it might ultimately be relevant. I mean, the jury are just regular people. And so things like that make a difference to the jury. I want to switch topics just a little bit and go from client analysis to other areas that are important to making the final decision, including how do we investigate the bad acts of the defendant? What are some of the things that we have to dig into to know whether the defendant was, quote, negligent? Elizabeth, what types of things do you look at when you're making, like, actually documents, things like that? What do you look at to make a decision? I think the number one thing for me, which is probably pretty obvious, I do a lot of med mal these days, is the medical records. And I think one thing that can be a little frustrating for clients, especially, is that it takes a lot of time to collect those. And we have to basically take your case beforehand before we can collect those. So sometimes you have to have hard conversations with them. So I suggest every all of our listeners to go listen to our difficult conversations episode to learn how to navigate those. <laughs> Other, I, I like to Google defendants, kind of see if I can get a feel for any other things, other similar incidents for product cases, look on CaseNet, see if they've been defendants before, or if it's like a big products case, maybe look at Pacer or even like Westlaw and see if I can find, dig up any dirt on the defendants. I will look at social media of defendants to kind of see how they are. And Erica, you do a lot of trucking cases. What types of documents can you get before filing suit that help you make your decision? Well, and since the trucking industry is regulated by the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, there is a clearinghouse database for the trucking industry called SaferWeb, where you can go and look up a lot of information about trucking companies, their insurance coverage, what policies they've held over the years, and also statistics about how many times they've had violations, how many times their drivers have had collisions or fatal accidents and things like that. You'd really get into the weeds, but if you know what you're doing, you can really know from the outset if you are dealing with a bad company, <laughs> but you can learn early on where you need to direct some of your digging and what type of defendant you might be dealing with. I want to go back a minute to medical records. And it's not just for medical malpractice. We have injury cases. So the medical records that document the injury and even document any problems the client had before the injury are of vital importance, not only to understand what the injuries are that we believe are related to the incident or accident, but to also understand if there are any gaping holes in the causation. I find this to be one of the hardest parts of what we do. 
sometimes it, it's simple. If you have motor vehicle accident and you've got a broken leg and you're complaining of leg pain and the ambulance notes your leg and you go to the ER and you've got leg problems and then you have to have surgery on your leg. Okay, that's one thing. But it's so much more complex than that most of the time. If you have someone who goes in with an infection that should have been seen by someone else or stopped or prevented, treated earlier, those types of things, and the client is deathly ill from that infection, there's always going to be room in those medical records for the defendant to find out what else is going on with this plaintiff that caused that infection to be really bad for him or her or to last longer than most people would, or just to have a worse result than someone else would. And that gets into comorbidities. And if they're a smoker, if they're diabetic, of all these things. But I look deeply at those medical records for what else was going on in this person's medical history that could be a red flag going forward. Mary, I see you nodding. Do you have similar experience? Yeah. And I I think that in terms of medical records, it kind of seems like we're talking about two different pieces when you're evaluating the case. One is liability, one's causation. Absolutely. And liability in, in a medical malpractice case, as you all know, you listen to what the client says. Oftentimes the clients don't have any records. Sometimes they have a, you know, a small handful, which we know is never the full picture that they've been able to retrieve. But we listen to what the client says. We tell the client, look, I completely believe you. I have to look at the records to see what was actually documented. It's crazy to think how much each of us has learned in reviewing the amount of medical records that we have. Sometimes I, you know, even surprise myself that I can actually look at a set of medical records and have a pretty decent understanding of what happened or what didn't happen. And it it just kind of happens over time that you get better at it. I think that the liability piece is a little bit easier for us to have an initial opinion on when we glean it from the records. We might also talk to an expert when evaluating a case to have a deeper understanding of what went on. And I think the causation piece, Amy, to your point, does require a little bit of a deeper evaluation. I have had a couple cases, oddly enough, where a client has come in due to a gunshot wound And then they claim that there's negligence in the ER or that the trauma surgeon caused in, you know, that might have resulted in an amputation of a leg or an arm or something, depending on where they were shot. I'm not familiar with trauma surgery or, you know, the the steps that it takes in order to clean out a wound or evaluate a wound and then fix it. And it's interesting to me to know that one client might come in and I look at the case, look at the records and call an expert and they walk me through the exact steps that you take when someone comes in with that type of gunshot wound and everything shored up and it was fine and the doctor did what they did to keep the client alive in the moment. Or on another hand, I might get a client who comes in with that and a doctor will say, whoa, this ER doc should have never done A, B, and C things first. They should have done this and this and that caused all the problems. And it just goes to show that there's such a deep level of analysis that we need to figure out and be 100% sure of before we're moving forward and taking our client through the next year to two years of litigation. I love getting a set of medical records. It's a haystack is what it is. <laughs> it, it is. And it's, and, and it is, that's the fun part. 
Yeah. yeah. And Erica, like you and I have worked on cases before where I've looked through the same set of medical records like 50 times and I almost have them memorized. And then you took a depo in the case and you're like, hey, have you seen this? And I'm like, well, I've looked at that page a hundred times and I haven't seen this one note. You know, it's just, it's crazy. That makes me sound very awesome. Yeah, (laughs) it was great. Sure. Happened all the time. Yeah. (laughs) It it just was, it's, it's so crazy how much information we learn from medical records and something to keep in mind as far as not only liability or causation, but Amy, to your point, getting our clients past records, which they never are going to see as relevant. If a client has a back injury and I'm asking them about a back surgery they had a couple years ago and they're like, no, 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 that doesn't have anything to do with this accident. I'm like, I get it, but it was only three years ago and the other side's going to find out and we got to deal with it. So we need to look at what treatment you had then. Did you fully recover? And now this is a new issue. Did it make it worse? It's just a, a lot goes into that evaluation that I that I don't know that a non-lawyer, why would they have reason to understand that? But it's it's something that's so important to convey to the client because there are so many things that go into our analysis and what is relevant in terms of a lawsuit that might just be completely irrelevant just to them, you know? So after we have gathered the relevant records and met with our client and done our research on the client and the potential defendants and analyzed where we could file this case. There's one more piece that we have to talk about, and that is damages. Because I have had many cases that have what I would consider to be very clear liability. In other words, very clear bad act on the part of the defendant or the defendants. A a good, clear link between the bad act and the injuries, but then you get to the damages and they are limited. And this is another one of those weird lawyer things that we have to talk about, which is, oh, there's not very many damages. Oh, boo. You're like, wait a minute. That means this person's life isn't totally ruined. That's actually a good thing. We should be happy about that. And we really are. But from the case perspective, it makes the case harder to pursue. And Liz, why is that? Litigation is expensive. And the way that we get paid is on a contingency fee basis, meaning that we're not charging our clients anything up front. We get our fees and we get our expenses back based on whatever recovery we can make for our client. And what I explain to clients is litigation is not cheap. We front the costs, but at the end of this case, whether it's a settlement or a jury verdict, we have to get our feedback, and we have to get our expenses paid off. That's the contract. And so with all of that said, if we can't get enough to justify bringing that case in the first place, I'm not going to drag a client through three years of a lawsuit and their life being exposed just so I can get a fee and I can get some expenses paid and I can try a case. I want to make sure that it's going to be a fair recovery for my client. It, I th- again, it's only fair, and I'm trying to be as open and honest as I can from day one with these clients. If the damages just aren't there, it is simply a bad business decision to take that case because a jury is not going to award enough to, to have justified bringing the case in the first place. I actually had this conversation yesterday 
with a client call. They brought it up and they said, you know, there's a possibility that this particular injury could be fixed. We're going to a new doctor. He's hopeful. And I said, that's great. That's wonderful. That's the goal. I hope that you find this doctor and he's able to give you whatever recovery, surgery, whatever you can. But also at the same time, while it's very good for you personally, it's bad from a litigation aspect because that means you're going to walk into trial asking a jury for money and the jury's going to say, well, what's wrong with you? What, what do you need money for? You're fine. You're fixed. It's a miracle. One bad doctor hurt you, but then another really great doctor fixed you. Isn't that great? Right. And luckily these clients got it. They understood it. Sometimes we have clients say, well, I get that, but I, you know, I lost six months of my life. I lost a year of my life. I've been you know, going in and out of hospitals. And I say, that's, that's certainly a damage. I'm never going to take that away from you. No one can. But we also have to think about this from the perspective of a juror. Liz, I have a really funny story when you're talking about, you know, trying to explain damages and how they're evaluated in terms of a, a lawsuit or in terms of a plaintiff's brain, right? One of my former law school classmates, I think they were a couple years behind me in law school, called me with a potential case and it had to do with a surgery that like one little thing and they needed to go back in for a repair and then it was repaired and their family member was fine and it was an orthopedic issue. And I'm trying to explain to her that it's not that the case isn't important or that I don't feel for her family member or that I don't think the doctor messed up or that I don't believe her or that that I don't believe her family member was in pain for the weeks between the first surgery and the second surgery. But I just sat there at my desk and I looked at my case list and I started talking to her a little bit at just about the overview of just the facts of some of our cases. And she was like, yeah. oh, okay. Yeah, I guess that's not, there aren't going to be that many damages. And I was like, yeah. And it, and it, I normally, obviously I'm never going to do that with a, a client, like comparing cases. It ends up being so counterintuitive sometimes, the things that we're explaining to clients, but that's not just clients. I have referring attorneys who are very counterintuitive, especially about men mal, because they see something that they think is a clear error. And unfortunately we can't stop there. I was talking to a referring attorney the other day and she was referring this med mal to me and she was kind of giving me a heads up on the conversation she had had with the potential client. And she's like, I told her, you know, it seems like a slam dunk case, but I'll let Erica talk to you about it. And I'm sitting there shaking my head going, oh, no, it's not, it it's worst. not a slam dunk case at all. And unfortunately it was one of those cases that had no damages. And so then I had to kind of re-explain that. But it's also an opportunity to talk with and workshop with a referring attorney what type of things you are looking for and what makes something a slam dunk case. It is difficult to have that conversation, but at least with damages, usually the client will be thankful that it's not worse. You know, you can usually say it really it, it is, you've had a nice recovery. It is not to take away that this happened to you and you suffered. Please don't think I, I believe that, but the economics of it, unfortunately, just aren't going to work out. And it's not just fees and expenses, y'all, it's liens. It's medical bills that have to be paid back, insurance companies that have to be paid back. And I say, look, your case might be worth $100,000, and that may seem like a lot of money, but you owe me a fee. We're going to have ten dollars to $20,000 in litigation expenses, and that's light. And that's a small case. Plus, you're going to owe $30,000 back to your insurance company. So 
do you really want to go through all this for $10,000? And they're kind of, sometimes you have to put it in that stark of a term and they do kind of understand it. But it just goes to show you all of the different avenues that we have to go down before we can have confidence that we can be successful for our clients at the end of this long journey with them, right? Because as we stated at the top, the one of the worst things that can happen is you go through these months and, and years of litigation without being successful. And I sometimes say that to a potential client as well when I'm not going to take their case. You're just you're going to feel even more defeated than you do right now. I promise you, because you're going to have gone through depositions where the defense attorneys are going to be blaming you or your family or downplaying your injuries or you name it. You're going to go through that and then not have anything. And now I can tell you this. I don't, it's not that you haven't been injured. It's not that you're not, that the injury wasn't a result of negligence. It's that the system really won't accommodate that. But at this point, it really is the best thing to do is to accept and move on. And litigation keeps those wounds open. We talked about clients that weren't likable. A lot of times, as I said before, it's because they're angry or feeling frustrated or wronged. And the sooner you can come to terms with that, the sooner you can, I think, get, maybe not ever get past it, but learn to deal with it and, and learn to accept what's happened and, and get back to as normal as you can. This is a John Simon paraphrasing quote. When you lose a few cases, you get really good at picking your clients <laughs> because... <laughs> because there's nothing worse professionally as a trial lawyer than losing a case. And you're constantly evaluating, why did I lose this case? My client was great. The liability was good. You know, what is it? And you really have to dig down deep to figure it out. And if you're doing your job, you're learning more from your losses than you are from your wins. And a lot of times that goes straight back to making a decision about whether to pursue a case. Well, ladies, thank you again for a great discussion today on case evaluation. I hope our listeners learned a little bit about our process. And if anybody has any questions about that process, please don't hesitate to reach out to any of us. You know where to find us uh, individually, but also at our website, heelsinthecourtroom.law. Thanks again. Bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. Heels in the Courtroom is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Connect with Amy, Liz, Mary, Erica, or Elizabeth at heelsinthecourtroom.law.